0: The scripture reading this morning is Matthew 21, verses 12 through 22. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. If you'd like to open your Bibles and follow with me, I will begin in Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read <laughs> out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Amen. Thank you, Jody. And it's just such a wonderful moment to be a part of uh, our church's story here. It's just such a thrill that I get to be in three services today and uh, get to be blessed three times in a row. um, uh, Reggie went from announcing to preaching during his uh, thing. That was great. When I grew up, I want to be like him. So that was uh That was awesome. Thank you for that. And uh, what a treat it is just to be a part of um, this particular moment in uh, God's story at College Park Church. So we're glad you're here. Tonight we're having our Fresh Encounter service. We moved it up a week because of the congregational meeting uh, next Sunday. And uh, tonight we'll be praying into um, our church and uh, asking God to come and visit us with power and glory. We'll also, at the end of that service, be talking about uh, some important staff transitions that we want you to be aware of. And so we'd love to have you come tonight, pray with us, and uh, seek God together as uh, we look to Him to uh, build His church in the next year, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we want Your presence among us today. We want to hear from You. We don't just want to look at Your Word. We don't just want to leave with a better understanding of Matthew 20 and 21. We want to hear this as if it's from You, because it is. And I realized this morning that I'm handling something sacred. This is your inspired word. As Jody said, this is the word of God for the people of God. A sober truth that's implicit in that statement. This is your word so that we can know how to live. And so we pray that you'd help us to hear it clearly, understand it deeply. And Father, I pray in particular for those who have a limited, narrow view of what your son is really like. That they only see Him as a merciful, forgiving Savior, which He is. But there's also another side of Him that we need to realize and come to terms with today. And I pray that you would do that. Shake us, I pray, in the inner man and inner woman today about who your Son really is and how He will come in glory and and judge the earth and prepare us for that day that we will be be known as one of His, as one of your children, not as one of your enemies. So Holy Spirit, use today this text, open eyes, we pray, do a miracle today, in this room, and worship too, or online as this message goes out. We pray for your mercy upon us, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we learned about the upside-down logic of Jesus, and we saw that in regards to certain words like fairness, or authority, or victory, Jesus often operates in a upside-down logic. The reality is, the way in which our world thinks is often directly opposed and almost directly opposite to how Jesus wants us to think. And so, we wanted you to understand last week that Jesus sees the world really differently and calls the followers, those who follow him, his disciples, to see the world differently as well. The problem with following Jesus, or the challenge, though, and the key to this particular section of Matthew, is not just to understand his teaching but you also have to understand who Jesus is. you got to understand what he's really like. You've got to see his heart in compassion. You've got to see him um, when he's brought to tears. And you also have to see the things that make Jesus upset. In a word, what makes Hosanna hot? Because there is a side to Jesus that... We need to understand. You see, many people dangerously develop a image of Jesus that only shows one aspect of his nature. They, they see him as a compassionate healer, or a lover of children, a friend of sinners, and that's all true. But there's another side to Jesus. There's a righteous anger side to our Lord. There are times when Jesus is angry, and to realize what these situations are is important because while it is true that Jesus is full of compassion and full of grace and full of mercy and a forgiver of sins, it is also true that he is one day coming to judge the world and will vindicate the name of the Father in retaliation for the presence of sin in this world. He will come and make everything right. He will be declared on that day King of kings and Lord of lords. And the reality is is that for those of us who know him personally, that's a great day. Our king comes but for those who do not know him, that is a fearful day because your judge comes. So today we're going to look at Matthew 20, 29 through twenty one, twenty two, and we want to see what makes Jesus hot, and then what does this tell us about him, and then what does that tell us about how we should live. There's four little snapshots, and then we'll... Pull together some applications. The first is Jesus the mercy giver. We didn't read this text, but it's part of what we're going to study this morning. Look at verse 29. I'll read it for you. It says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. This is Matthew 20:29. 20, and behold, verse 30, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus is on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is a familiar path, about 15 miles long, and it's about 3,500 feet from the base of Jericho to the elevation of Jerusalem, which is why in the Psalms, particularly Psalms 120 through 134, they're called Psalms of Ascent. As people went up to Jerusalem, they went up and they sang Psalms. Psalms that talk about, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help, my help comes from the Lord. That's what people sang as they walked up to the mount. And so this road would be frequently traveled by pilgrims who would sing these songs and were on their way to worship in the holy city of Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, this is a busy road. And because of that, the spiritual nature of the pilgrims, there would be disabled people along the road who would ask for help and assistance. They would... Ask these travelers if they would somehow help them. Well, two blind men were sitting along the road when they hear that Jesus is coming their direction. And so they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, in Matthew, this is code for them saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew 1 1. We saw this at the very beginning of our study. To say son of David and to connect it with the word Lord is a clear indication that they are believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Chosen one, the Messiah. They cry out in faith for Jesus to have mercy on them. The word means divine favor or grace or compassion and they are along that road because they are in need of help and they believe that Jesus can help them. Verse 31. The crowd, however, it says, rebuked them. These are, mind you, the followers of Jesus. These are people going along with Jesus, and it's remarkable, and it's so stunning that often the followers of Jesus just completely miss the very heart of, uh, heart of their Savior, and they tell the men to be quiet. They rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But these blind men would have none of it, and even though they were told to be silent, they cried out all the more, "'Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David.'" So they cry out more and more because they know that Jesus can help them. In verse 32, Jesus stops and he asks them, I think, a kind of a funny question. There's two blind men on the side of the road. They're crying out for help. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I'm very grateful that I live in this era of church history and wasn't one of the disciples, because I know what I would have done. I would have gone up to Jesus and I would have said, clearly, Lord, they're, they're, they're blind, and they would like to be healed. And, but Jesus isn't asking that kind of question. He's not asking a factual question. He, he, he's asking them a question that he will pull something out of them. And this is what God often does. Think of what happens when um, he walks in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. God says, Adam, where are you? God didn't lost Adam. He wasn't like, oh, no, where would he go? I mean, he he knows exactly where he is. He's not asking that because he doesn't know where he is. He's asking that to identify with Adam how far away Adam has walked from God. Or or think of Job when um, Job asks God, why have you done this to me? And God says to Job, where were you when I formed the earth? God's not asking, where were you? I don't know. God knows exactly where Job was. You see, what Jesus is doing here is what God often does, is he asks inquisitive questions to his people in order to draw out something from them that they wouldn't naturally understand or see. He's asking them, what do you want me to do for you? Not because he doesn't know what's wrong with them, but rather he's about ready to pull out of them a very important word in the Bible, and it's the word faith. Habakkuk says that the righteous shall live by faith. And what Jesus is doing here is he's pulling out faith, and that faith is going to activate their healing. You see, because Jesus is not on the earth just to heal people. Oh, he will heal people. But he's there in order to demonstrate his healing power so that their faith can be put in him. His end game is faith, and healing is the means by which he gets them there their response is so moving lord let our eyes be opened just think of it they're sitting by that road they hear jesus is coming they cry out jesus stops and they say what do you want lord let our eyes be opened in other words you can do it and then jesus in great compassion it says in pity he touched their eyes in pity because their 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 blindness is a consequence of sin in the world And he's going to come and and he's going to reverse all of this. But right now, he, he brings in a measure of his presence by healing them. And he touches their eyes and immediately they were healed. Can you imagine that moment? All of a sudden, their eyes are open. They're looking around. They're seeing things they've never seen before. And then it says, they followed Jesus. I mean... I would imagine that the rest of the way, that's a long 15 miles for the disciples, because I bet these guys didn't stop talking the whole way there. Look at the trees, look at look at the animals, look at the donkey, look at the dirt, look at you! I mean, they're just like, wow, I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, and this has got to be a beautiful moment all the way, talk about all the way to Jerusalem, what a beautiful, my eyes have seen. I mean, talk about, wow, the new meaning of this psalm to these men. The takeaway is this, friends, that Jesus is full of compassion, He's full of power, and those who trust in him and believe in him experience the beauty of what He can do. See Jesus's end game is not just healing here. His end game is for people to put their, their trust and their hope in him. That's what his end game is. Jesus is ready to give mercy to those who believe that He can help them. So he's the mercy giver. Here's the second picture, and that is that of a humble king. Look at chapter 21 and verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet so what happens here is this is what we know as the triumphal entry or palm sunday this is the beginning of the week of christ's passion now we're going to be in this section of scripture all the way through until easter sunday of next year so we'll be making our way from now to the end of this book and it'll be a long week in the biblical record and there's all kinds of things that happen in here this is the beginning though the triumphal entry Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, 9 in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now the point of all this prophecy here from Zechariah was this, that their king was to be marked by something that most kings were not marked by, and that was humility. And... Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey. Now when kings came into a city that they had conquered and announced their rule and reign, they came on big animals, beautiful horses that did high steps and, and looked regal. A donkey is anything but that. A donkey was an animal that was used to carry burdens. It was what you had at the end of a procession that, that carried your supplies. It's a, It's a farm implement, if you will so for them to see jesus riding on a donkey it's it's just a, it's a huge contrast let me try and get a feeling in your heart of what this would have felt like imagine the inauguration of the president of the united states imagine a long procession of big black vehicles and then at the end is our president who's waving to the crowds and you hear this strange sound it sounds like Arr! And you're like, what is... And he comes around the corner, and there he is in all of his splendor and power of the known free world, and he's riding a beautiful, bright green John Deere lawn tractor. (laughs) And I don't care if that baby had hydrostatic or what it had. The reality is you would look at that and go, ah, I don't... I don't know if that's the image I want North Korea to see right now. I'm just, that's thats not really what I'm looking for. And it it might create so much tension in your mind that in one respect you might like laugh, you might kind of go, (laughs) it's just not funny because it's like silly but it's not. And this is the image. This is what it would have generated in terms of just the contrast of a king coming on a donkey? Really? But there's a point here. And it's this, is that Jesus is not the kind of king that most people expect. The crowds respond to his coming with great enthusiasm. And regardless of his means of entering, and however kind of maybe silly or strange it was, they believe that their deliverer has come. Most of them believe that finally, help is on the way. You see, they were looking for a Messiah who would bring healing to them who would free them from the Roman tyranny of what they were dealing with with an occupied Gentile force who would liberate them from this Herod the Great, this Idumean who wasn't even really Jewish anyways, and who Rome had set up as their puppet. And they were longing for the day of the glory of Israel to return, when David would rule on the throne, and there would be this figurative, beautiful restoration of the nation of Israel. And they believed that Jesus was going to usher that in. Rome was going to be off their back, Herod would be gone, and a new king would be in place. That's why they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Meaning, God save now and everywhere. That's what the word Hosanna means. Save now, save now in all of your realm. Their statement is an enthusiastic cry for deliverance and dominion and destiny and power. The problem is they don't understand what they're saying. The crowd and the noise swelled in verse 10 to such an extent that the whole city was stirred up. Jerusalem was large, but news of Jesus' entrance caused the city to ask, who in the world is this? Listen, this remarkable moment shows us the incredible contrast between people's perceptions of Jesus and who he really is. And this happens even today, where, where people are enthralled with Jesus because they think that Jesus is going to give them what they want sometimes people even present the gospel this way. You don't want to go to hell, do you? No. Then receive Jesus. Yes. And then when you find out that following Jesus is costly, you've got to bear your cross and follow him, and there's there's real pain involved in becoming Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I just signed up so I could know where I'd go when I die. I didn't mean, like, cost me my life now. See, blessed is he who comes... Most people look at that phrase and live it out this way when it comes to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes to give me what I want. And then when their life isn't like they wanted or when they become disappointed, they turn on him. And do you really think that you wouldn't be like the people in Israel who one moment could say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and only six days later say crucify him. See, this is the nature of the human heart that so many times we come to Jesus because we think he'll make us happy, fix what's wrong, bring us blessings, make us whole, and Jesus can do all of that, but it also means that Jesus has to be accepted for who he is. He is Lord. And when you receive Christ, it means he takes over your life. It means you're no longer in control. Gloriously, you belong to him, and it means that Jesus has the the right to rule your life. He's a humble king. And in order for Jesus to be your hope, you have to let him define the future and also have to let him define the path of how you get there. So if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, here's the deal. You don't get to determine how you get from point A to point B. He does. And just so you know, he's really good at figuring that out. So it's best just to be able to trust him. And it is enough to say, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you because you are my king. So he's a humble king. He's a giver of mercy. Those are familiar pictures. Let me show you two that are not so familiar. Verse 12. gives us a picture here of Jesus as the purifier of the temple. Verse 12 says, And he entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. What's going on here? Well, you need to understand that the temple mount is the setting for this event. And what had happened is that Herod the Great had expanded the temple to a space that was the equivalence of 35 football fields. This was an enormous Arena for worship. And it involved four courts. The inner court was the court that only the priests could go in. And then there was the next layer of courts which Jewish men could go where the sacrifices were offered. And then there was a court for the women where the the Jewish men would pass through. The women could stay there and worship. And then in the outer ring was the Gentile court. And it's believed that it is in this Gentile court on the Temple Mount that there was the establishment of some services to help people who came for worship. For instance, if you came from a foreign country and you had a currency with a, um, a pagan inscription on it, that type of currency couldn't be given in the temple tax, and so you had to exchange your currency to the acceptable particular monetary means to give your temple tax. So there were money changers that were there all around this um, Gentile court area. And as well, when people came to offer sacrifices, oftentimes they couldn't bring their sacrifices with them. So as a convenience and as a service to those worshippers that were coming, there were merchants who sold doves or pigeons there. And so you can imagine that this arena around the temple in the court of the Gentiles was a bit like a bazaar. It was full of money and exchanging, and no doubt there were things happening in there that were not so honoring to God. As you know, you just simply put desperate people in a position where others can do whatever they want, and pretty soon you'll find exorbitant exchange rates. You'll find prices of doves or pigeons begins to go up, and you'll also find that in the very essence of commerce, there's going to be noise and a lot of traffic, and yet this is the court in which Gentiles are supposed to come and pray? So this is supposed to be a worship environment. It's supposed to be an environment where these Gentiles could come and pray, and they're going to try and pray in the middle of a mall, if you will. And so what happened is that God's temple mount has suddenly now become all about the preparation for worship, all about the production of worship, and God's the worship of God himself has been set really to the backseat of this equation. Jesus sees this, And it enrages him verse 12 says, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Now get this, this is a big area. So to drive out all of these people and to turn over these money changers, Jesus is running around this temple area like a madman and he's tipping over the tables, coins are spilling onto the pavement, there's there's pigeons and doves that are being released and flying up into the air, and no doubt the money changers are starting to run and grab their money and take off because they don't want him to overturn their tables, and they're looking around going, who is this crazy man? And Jesus was so filled with zeal for the Father's house, he's doing all these things and then he says this my house shall be called a house of prayer other um, particular books of the bible like mark or luke say my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers it seems that jesus is upset because the environment of the temple was no longer about worship it was about the business of worship See, in the midst of all of this preparation for worship, the temple became a heartless, commercialized center, and they had added so much support to worship that they neglected the very heart of worship. You might say, how in the world could they do that? The answer is the same way that you did it this morning, trying to get your kids ready for church. I mean, seriously, in in, in our world, missing socks creates sin. It's just pretty simple. (laughs) where's my shoes? I don't know where your shoes are. And before you know it, we're so busy getting ready for worship that we're not getting ready for worship. You know what I'm saying? You, you drive into church, you can't find a parking lot, and boy, well, you would never say something out loud, but in your heart you're grumbling, you're sinning, you're, you're, you're actually upset because you can't find a parking spot in church And before you even are in the building. And you get in, and they don't sing exactly the right song that you want to sing, and you're torqued, and Or you're a person who's involved in the production of worship and you've been so busy trying to get the right note, the right key, the right outfit, the right appearance, the right smile. And the reality is you've been so busy thinking about how people view you or what they hear that you haven't even stopped to think, is what does God hear? Listen, this is not an Israel problem. This is not a temple problem. This is a people problem. Verse 14 After Jesus cleanses the temple, purifies it, suddenly now we've got the blind and the lame who are coming to him, and children begin crying out, Hosanna, the son of David. Get this, there's blind people who are being healed in the temple mount. There's lame who are being healed. Jesus is is changing people's lives. They're going to go from unclean to clean like that. These, these people could have never gone in the inner sanctum of even the Jewish court. They had to stay on the outside, and he's healing them, and the religious leaders are upset. They're annoyed. It, it says that they were indignant, and they said, Do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear? So then Jesus quotes a verse of Scripture, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have ordained praise and What's crazy here is what we often know to be true, and that is sometimes it's the most religious people in the world who get annoyed about all the wrong things. Listen, beloved, this isn't a text that's for people outside of this building. This is a text for people inside this building. This is about us. That it's really easy to not be put off by the wrong things and to be put off by all the right things. They were put off by Jesus and the miracles he did and the praise that he received and yet they were neglecting the fact that they were people who were really being helped right in front of them. And this is what Jesus does. He purifies the church to help us get religion right. You see, it's often that those who are inside of a rotation of regular religious activities need to be reminded that God likes to upturn our tables because we often neglect what's really important to him. Let me give you an example of this. Take your Bible go to Isaiah chapter 1. Again, to show you this is not just a um, an Israel problem, but a people problem, I want to show you this all the way back in Isaiah 1. And... To help you see that, and here's the point, is that God is continually trying to help His church be pure. And by being pure, I mean that we really understand what His heart is. And sometimes you can be so right, you're just really wrong. Isaiah 1, if you look at verse 10, God actually says to His people, He calls them, <clears throat> he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, little news flash. When God calls you Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not a good day. Okay? Because bad things happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. So when God says, hey Sodom and Gomorrah, you're like, okay, hello, yes, I got you listening. What's happening? Because you know that that was not a good term. And he says this to his people. Verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of well fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense is abomination to me, new moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. See what he's saying? He's saying, shut it down. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And then he explains, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson, they shall be white as wool. Here's the, one of the things that just drives me crazy. It is that this verse about, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow, that has often been used in gospel presentations. And okay, maybe you could use it there, but listen, that verse is about sins of Neglect where people were so busy worshiping that they never considered that they needed to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless. It's echoing what James will say, that faith without works is what? Dead. I've used the term before, social justice. every time I do... Um, there's some questions on that. I just want you to see that Isaiah one talks about social justice, not the neglect of the content of what the message is, but as a support that you really believe the message. And here's the problem. And I just be blunt is that I find that there are many evangelical believers who know more about social justice from Glenn Beck than they do from the Bible. And the reality is, we've got to be sure that we're able to take both the gospel and justice, and those things have to go hand in glove, or the question is, do you really even understand what the gospel is? See, the reality is we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the midst of the temple mount, while Jesus is healing people, the Pharisees, the most religious people in all the world, they're more upset because children are praising him than they are rejoicing the fact that Jesus just brought the the temple back to purity. Because it was the balance of both sacred worship and also godly, righteous healing. So, the reality is, is there's a purifier. A purifier that Jesus aims to bring religion back to what it is supposed to be, and that is purity of heart. It is to meet with God, to purify our worship, and he's willing to turn over the tables of our lives to get us there. Verse 18, here's the final one. And we see him as the judge. Here's an image that will probably make us uncomfortable. Verse 18, the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing the fig tree, a fig tree rather, by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree withered at once. Here's a very interesting picture of Jesus. He's hungry, which shows us his humanity. He goes over to this fig tree. There's no figs on it. And so he curses the fig tree and right in front of the disciples' eyes. This must have just freaked them out. This tree went and just withered right in front of them. It is a remarkable picture, not only of who Jesus is, but also a remarkable picture of the fact that C.S. Lewis says that Aslan is good, but not safe. Hear me, Jesus is good, but friends, he's not safe. The lesson in the fig tree is Jesus is reinforcing his disdain for, listen, religious fakery. The tree gave every outward sign of bearing fruit, but it actually bore none. D.A. Carson says its leaves advertised that it was bearing, but its advertisement was false. And you will see over the next couple of weeks that Jesus is going to ramp up his attack on this false, fake, veneer religion. The passage concludes with the disciples being amazed and probably a bit afraid at what Jesus had done And they asked him how the fig tree withered, and Jesus' answer highlights the primacy of faith and trust in him. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken away and thrown into the sea, it will happen, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive If you have faith, what is he saying? He's saying this, that fakery and fraudulence have no place in Christ's kingdom. It is faith and trust in Christ that wins the day. That's what he's saying. And so what is it that Christ at the end of the day judges? He judges, what do you place your faith in? And the only answer when you stand before God at judgment day and he asks you, what will you do with your sins? The only answer that will spare you of divine and eternal wrath is I've placed my faith in your son. That's it. It's as simple and as profound and as eternal and as hopeful as that. My hope is found in nothing else but Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That's it. Everything else is what? Sink and sand. It has the appearance that you're going to stand, but it sinks over time. So the question is, how do we need to see Jesus? First, I want you to understand that Jesus is full of mercy for desperate people. So if you're one of the people that you're here today, and what's going on inside of your heart is simply this, Lord, have mercy on me. You're in a really good place, and you've got to know that Jesus can be able to meet you right where you are. The desperation in your life is by divine design. Jesus is full of mercy for desperate people. Secondly, Jesus is a humble Lord. Only Jesus can bring together these two words, humble and Lord. Only Jesus can ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and then change the world. Only Jesus can give his life so he can take over yours. Jesus' way is often backwards, but that doesn't mean it's not right. And when you wonder what in the world is he doing, just remember what he did in the past and how it worked out. Third, listen, Jesus still works to purify his people. He still wants to take religious people. You came to church today. Great job. I'm glad you're here. But Jesus still wants to purify you. This isn't enough. It's not enough just that you came. It's not enough that you've sang. It's not enough that you've given. It's not enough. Jesus wants to purify us, and he's going to use things like discipline, Hebrews 12, or pruning, like John 15, or even the purifying process in First Peter 1. He's going to do things in our lives in order to make something bigger and better for his glory and our good. So yesterday, my wife and I trimmed the bush way back. I mean, we cut that thing way, way, way down. And in the years past, I used to think, honey, should we do this? And she knows. She goes, don't worry. Trust me. It's going to be fine. And sure enough, we trimmed that thing all the way back. And spring, it just explodes in new growth and new life. But the pruning process is clear and all the dead stuff has to be taken away. And that's exactly what Jesus still wants to do in our lives, in his church, and around the world. He's a purifier you know when revival happens? Revival happens when the church returns back to the essence and the heart of what Jesus wants for his church. And finally, Jesus is coming as judge. Listen, the Bible couldn't be any clearer on this, and therefore you and I have to wrestle with, do you really know him? Because you're either... A friend of his or you are his enemy. Either you will meet a savior who is filled with mercy because you've received him now or you will meet a coming king who's going to judge the world. A few weeks ago there was some kind of pipe... That was cut or something on Michigan Avenue and it was this ro- loud roar like a like the sound of a plane stuck over top of the church My windows were rattling. The building was shaking. I was like what in the world's going on? It sounded like there was a 747 hovering over the church, which I knew that's not really a good scenario So I went out to look and to see what was happening and I couldn't find it. There's just this roar And don bartimus met me out there and we're looking around. going, what is going on? And then I said to him, maybe jesus is coming back wouldn't that be sweet, you know? And then I thought, yeah, yeah, would it? Am I ready? You know, I'm thinking all these thoughts and, uh, you know, I called my wife and sorry about that thing I said this morning, honey. I really you know, I got all these things taken care of because I think it changed how I viewed the rest of the day. And the reality is I don't live like that every day, nor do you. And maybe we should. Because here's what the Bible says. Revelation, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems he has a name written that no one knows but himself he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Make no mistake about it, friends, this King is coming, this word of the Bible is true, and one day you will see Him, and the question is whether or not you will know Him for who He really is, or whether or not you will be His enemy rather than His friend. You must understand the whole reality of who Jesus is, because every element of Him is eternally important eternally important. Lord, help us to know and understand your word and that you, by your spirit, would empower us to think about who you are in the full reality of your glory. We pray that, God, today, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that they would realize that this word from Revelation is going to be true and you know their hearts, you see and you burn through all of the veneer and Lord today in believing faith I pray they would turn from their sins and come to faith in Christ. And Father for those of us who know and love this truth help us to live in the reality of pure and undefiled religion to love the gospel and then to live out the gospel because you Every time we do something to the least of these, our brothers, we do it as unto you. So thank you that you are a purifier. Thank you that you are a judge. Thank you that you are full of mercy. Thank you that God, in Christ, you have been, your wrath has been appeased by the person and the work of this, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Listen, there will be some folks up here afterwards. If you need to pray with somebody, they're here, all right? God bless you. I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming today.